In his 2014 book, Wonder Woman Unbound, The Curious History of the World's Most Famous Heroine, Tim Hanley wrote, Despite the best of intentions, the mod Diana Prince paled in comparison to her fellow female characters. Once ahead of her time, the times had left her behind. The idea of stripping the genre's strongest, oldest, and most famous female character of her superpowers ran contrary to the contemporary movement toward female empowerment. Diana engaged in all the stereotypes and cliches that other female characters had escaped and real-world women denounced. Ultimately, it was so bad that the depowered Wonder Woman resulted in feminists leading a campaign for a return to the feminist heights of the golden age the novelty of a new one woman initially gave the series a slight sales bump but the book soon returned to its unimpressive numbers dennis o'neill and mike sikowski's attempted portrayal of a modern woman didn't go over well particularly with modern women chief among those disappointed with the comic was gloria steinem a writer and political activist who had become the face of feminism in america she had been a fan of wonder woman as a child and wanted her to return to her amazon roots steinem was also friends with dc comics's owner steve ross and occasionally stopped by the dc offices in new york city she lobbied for the old wonder woman to return and dc soon announced that the mod era would end with January 1973's Wonder Woman number 204. Diana Prince would be Wonder Woman again. Pleased by the news, Steinem splashed the return of Wonder Woman across her new project. The women's liberation movement was growing rapidly, and Steinem wanted to introduce its ideas and values to a mainstream audience. So she and her associates launched Miss Magazine in 1972. Most women's magazines at the time were of the ladies' home journal and good housekeeping variety, focused on recipes and cleaning products and how to keep a proper home. Miss was an alternative to these magazines and discussed women's issues, politics, and the feminist lifestyle. It was an instant success, and when the first issue hit the newsstands in July 1972, Wonder Woman was on the cover. She was a giant, striding forward with half of her body in an average American street on the left and the other half in a Vietnam War scene. The image suggested that Wonder Woman could be a force for good in both worlds. In one hand, she rescued a group of buildings with her golden lasso, and with the other hand, she swatted a fire plane out of the sky. A sign in the town reads, Peace and Justice in 72, while the magazine's headline declared Wonder Woman for President. The issue included an article by Joanne Edgar about the history of Wonder Woman that ended with the news that she would soon return to her Amazon roots. They also reprinted a few pages from William Bolton Marston and H.G. Peters' first Wonder Woman story from All-Star Comics No. 8. Miss also had a book publishing division, which put together a collection that reprinted 12 Golden Age Wonder Woman stories. The book was prefaced by an article on the history of the Amazons by Phyllis Chesler and a lengthy introduction by Steinem. The comics were divided into four sections, Origins, Sisterhood, Politics, and Romance, and Steinem provided a brief introduction for each as well. After years of decline and increasing irrelevance, Wonder Woman teamed up with the women's liberation movement to restore the character to her former glory. The editors in Miss were fans of the original Wonder Woman and saw her as a feminist icon. Edgar wrote that she hoped the new direction for the series would return our heroine to the feminism of her birth, and Simon echoed these sentiments, writing that she wanted to see the feminism and strength of the original Wonder Woman, My Wonder Woman, restored. However, when the women of Miss talked about the feminism of her birth, they referred to the Marston era. His feminism was complicated, filled with contradictions and some troubling fixations. With their celebration of the original Wonder Woman, Steinem and her friends glossed over the more problematic bits of the character and focused on the areas that reflected their own modern feminist beliefs. Their depiction of Wonder Woman restored parts of the original, but ultimately they recreated Wonder Woman in their own image for a new generation. Steinem and Edgar both had high hopes for Wonder Woman's return to her Amazon roots. They were well aware of her recent comic book history. Edgar noted that, like many of us, she went into a decline in the 50s, and Steinem decried the mod Diana Prince era and its depowered heroine. Both were excited to have Wonder Woman back as a fully powered superhero and were particularly pleased that a woman, Dorothy Woolfolk, would be editing the book. The Amazon Wonder Woman returned in January 1973 in Wonder Woman number 204, but it didn't start well. A sniper was loosed in the city and his first victim was Dottie Cottonman, women's magazine editor. Starting off the issue by killing a women's magazine editor after a women's magazine had enthusiastically endorsed this new direction for the book was an odd choice. That the editor's name was an obvious analog for Dorothy Woolfolk was just in poor taste. Despite being announced as the book's editor, Woolfolk wasn't at the helm of Wonder Woman's relaunch. She'd been replaced by another editor. What editor could possibly have the short-sighted, imbecilic idea to simultaneously disrespect a colleague and offend any new liberal feminist readers who bought the book because of Miss? It was Robert Kaniger, back in the Wonder Woman fold again, writing and editing the series. His four years away from the book hadn't changed his style at all. 
Wall. Kanegar's first issue did achieve the goal of ending the mod era and reestablishing the Amazon Wonder Woman. Diana was drawn back to Paradise Island, where her memories and powers were restored. Her origin was retold through this memory restoration, a combination of Marston and Kanegar's origin tales. It included both the despondent women who had lost their husbands and the Hercules story. And Hercules was still the source of a quarter of Wonder Woman's abilities despite the inclusion of his villainous actions. Ultimately, Wonder Woman returned to America, where her alter ego, again Diana Prince, got a job as a translator at the United Nations. After that, the series became rehashes of old Kanegar stories. Kanegar slightly rewrote one of his old ideas, and a new artist would draw it. Kanegar's second tenure on Wonder Woman lasted only eight issues, likely due to the fact that he only wrote three original scripts. Flashback to the September-October 1949 cover dated Wonder Woman number 37, a story by Robert Kanegar and original Wonder Woman artist Harry G. Peter. When Wonder Woman had accomplished the impossible by reconstructing a 2,000-year-old Chinese mummy case out of a million shattered fragments, her task had only just begun, for the amazing sight inside the case forced her to return more than 2,000 years into the past to battle through the most thrilling adventures of her career before the beautiful Amazon maid could solve the riddle of the Chinese mummy case. At the camp of Professor Dorain, famous archaeologist, based near a part of the Great Wall of China, the titular mummy case was discovered. But while trying to lift the case with a crane, it slipped and shattered into a million pieces. The scientists concluded that no man could put this thing back together again, but one woman could. Later at military intelligence, Lieutenant Diana Prince receives a mental radio call from Colonel Steve Trevor. To avoid suspicion, Diana Prince turned into Wonder Woman in her office, leapt onto her invisible plane waiting outside, waited a moment, and then leapt through the window of Steve Trevor's office. Angel, you sure came promptly. Not too promptly, I hope. Wonder Woman treated the giant case of scattered pieces like a jigsaw puzzle and solved it within 20 seconds. Within the case was a statue of a Chinese warrior princess, but she wore sandals like those of the Amazons, and Merciful Minerva, a Pelta, the crescent shield of the ancient Amazons. The Amazon princess leapt out of the office, across a series of metropolitan skyscrapers until she made her way to Paula's secret laboratory within the city. After a cordial greeting, Dinah asked Paula to use her space transformer to transport her 2,000 years into the past. Arriving in ancient China, Dinah spied a clash between woman warriors and northern barbarians. Diana helped her out to barbarians and then learned that the figure in the statue was Princess Mai. You may recall, my friend, that the ancient Amazons conquered Asia Minor. My own ancestors journeyed here and founded this land. For centuries, we ruled China, but now this province alone remains as a matriarchy, and for this the barbarians would destroy us. Diana was kinswoman of my own ancestors. Speed your steed, fellow warrior. Help me rally my scattered army. Not unlike Hippolyta's confrontation with Hercules in ancient times, even more ancient than these, Diana confronted a towering macho warrior with a long Fu Manchu and a green hat that had a bit of a spire to it. Green armor with a red cross in the center and a large battle axe. Wonder Woman challenged Chang to individual combat and of course defeated him, even after he employed treachery to try to chop her head clean off. The barbarians weren't willing to take that defeat lightly and ganged up on Wonder Woman. They were in turn defeated. And then Mai's warriors drove them off. There was a great celebration at Mai's city, but unfortunately in the midst of the revelry, Chang was able to sneak in and kidnap Princess Mei. It was the barbarians that crafted the statue that was found 2,000 years in the future and in need of reconstruction by Wonder Woman. They basically sent it to the Amazon city to demonstrate that they had their princess hostage and demand Wonder Woman's release to them or their leader would be killed. Diana leapt over the city walls and tried to run to the barbarian camp to rescue Princess May, but she was knocked unconscious by Chang. Diana was then bound by her own unbreakable lasso to Chang's father's bronze shield. Apparently, Chang's father was superhuman himself, had the strength of 10 men and could lift this mighty shield, but as it was, it took 10 of Chang's men to pick up the shield and carry it to a cliff where they intended to throw one woman off. Diana woke before then and with lightning speed was able to shatter the bronze shield rather than have it bend beneath her, and then she defeated those 10 villains. Next, she raced back to the Amazon city where the barbarians were planning a siege and had brought an artificial dragon, sort of a, like a Trojan horse with them. Diana destroyed the dragon, routed the army, and rescued Princess May. And just to put 
the icing on top in order to protect the Amazons in the future. She built the Great Wall of China single-handedly. It's a fun story, but it very much culturally colonizes Chinese lore and obviously an extraordinary Chinese accomplishment in the name of a white woman. So not the sort of thing that would fly today. But that didn't stop Robert Kaniger from rewriting the exact same story for the August-September 1973 cover dated Wonder Woman number 207. In that version, you and Guy Diana Prince sitting alone inside of an elevator in the UN building. The elevator cable snapped, likely due to a lunatic fringe gangs meant to sabotage peaceful diplomatic relations. By turning into Wonder Woman, Diana not only survives the crash, but then plows through a secret second shaft where she happens to discover ancient Amazon scrolls, which told the story of the riddle of the Chinese mummy case. And for the most part, with a few tweaks, it's a word-for-word reproduction of the original story, but this time drawn by Rick Estrada. And whatever your feelings toward H.G. Peter, uh, I gotta tell you, the original was a lot better than what Rick Estrada threw together. It was very rough and basic and of its time. Chang is rendered as more of a stereotypical Hun-style barbarian with a furry coat, mostly naked. He's a big brawny guy this time. He's not as distinctive looking as the Chang from the 40s. And also it's a truncated version of the story. The original ran about 17 pages. The remake did 13 pages. And that includes a two-page spread early on. The whole thing feels like a cheat and definitely doesn't feel like it belongs in a 1973 story. With the remaining pages, the same creative team in the Bronze Age retells the first chapter of a story by the same creative team in the Golden Age. This time from the January-February 1949 cover dated Wonder Woman number 33. Thumbs down. The ancient Roman signal for death is once again repeated. Only this time the scene is Paradise Island. Once the stronghold of the Amazons and the condemned prisoners are Wonder Woman and Queen Hippolyte. How Wonder Woman, beautiful as Aphrodite, wise as Athena, stronger than Hercules and swifter than Mercury, exerts her amazing powers to the utmost. To save the island and its imprisoned Amazons before the death sentence is carried out is the thrilling scene of this astonishing two-part story, The Four Dooms, Part 1, Paradise Island Condemned, Transformation Island, where Amazons transform through discipline and love the bad character traits of women prisoners. Mala, in charge of the island, greets a new prisoner from the island of Kedmia. The criminal inventor was to be fitted with a Venus girdle, which would basically mellow her mind and make her submissive. But Inventor was so brilliant, she was able to see the key by which the Venus girdle was locked one time, memorize it, recreate it, and free herself in secret. She then proceeded to liberate several more detainees, including Torcha, a redhead. I should point out that Inventa has black hair, and a third unnamed compatriot has brown hair. There are actually several more besides. Anyhow, these prisoners were able to overtake their Amazon guards and steal a glider, which they then intentionally crash in the oceans near Paradise Island. Inventa assures them that it's necessary, they have to create this ruse, that if it isn't clear that they did crash the plane, that the Amazons would see through their treachery. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Diana Prince had been at military intelligence. She received a mental radio message from her mother inviting her to the annual sports games. Diana was able to arrive almost instantaneously since her silent robot plane could fly 3,000 miles per hour. Diana is greeted warmly and then participates in one of the main gladiatorial battles with Hercula, an Amazon champion. Hercula manages to shatter Diana's sword and apparently her chance for winning. Other Amazons call on Hippolyta to call off the battle, but the queen asserts every Amazon must depend upon herself. The match will go on. In another unfortunate turn, Diana's Kanga steed, excited by the contest, reared backwards so far that it knocked Wonder Woman to the ground. But between her bracelets and her reclaiming the steed, Diana is eventually able to overcome Hercula, who then rests in her arms and says, You have defeated me. You are wonderful. Hail to our princess. She has won fairly. As the games continue, the Amazon maid performs incredible feats with the graceful ease which has earned her the title by which she is known throughout the solar system, Wonder Woman. In wrestling, she overcomes two champions simultaneously. In the high jump roping contest, the beautiful princess sleeps higher than the lassos of the Amazons can reach. And in the game of nets and forfeits, Princess Diana astounds her competitors. As the Amazons hail the victorious Wonder Woman, Hercula notes, Rocket distress 
signal sighted far out at sea. The Amazons rush to save the women in the glider, who pretend to be actresses who had been on a movie set. Diana uses her lasso to tow the glider back to shore, and is thankful that all the actresses are women, so that they can set foot on Paradise Island without the Amazons losing their eternal youth. However, at the shore, Hippolyta recognizes, Great Hera, it's Inventa, with prisoners from Transformation Island. Recapture them, Amazons. At that port, Inventa and her compatriots don gas masks and begin blasting the Amazons with chemicals. Further, Diana is wound up by her own lasso, since she'd still been in the midst of pulling the plane to shore. The is distracted by the need to rescue her daughter, although Diana fares fairly well on her own. Regardless, Inventa and her people manage to knock out all the Amazons and claim Hippolyta's girl besides. The coup had been part of Inventa's long-term plans to discover what magic the Amazons possess, which makes them invincible. Once that power was in her hands, Inventa would turn it against the Amazons and then the world. However, upon questioning Hippolyta and Diana, learns that there is no magic in their feats. Anyone who submits to loving authority as we do possesses the same qualities of strength and agility. Blind fury, such as you're displaying, can harm only you, Inventa. Why don't you give our ways of discipline and love a trial? Inventa's angry at the Amazon's perceived deception, but likes the idea of having a trial. So she gags Hippolyta and Diana and has her court of fellow detainees sentence the pair to the island of Cadmia for death by the Four Dooms. Wonder Woman, you will be the first to meet the Four Dooms. The Doom of the Rolling Stone, the Doom of the Blinding Mirrors, the Doom of the Labyrinth, and the Doom of the Dragon's Teeth. But in the 1940s version, it would be in the next chapter of the story. In the 1970s version, you'd have to wait until the following month's issue of Wonder Woman. Number 208, cover dated October, November 1973. The main difference with the 1970s version is that instead of Scorcher being the redhead, it's Inventa. All the characters are far more sexualized with panty shots and plunging necklines and pendulous breasts. And this first chapter is subtitled Revolt of Transformation Island. Knowing the Amazons are immortal as long as they remain on Paradise Island, the cunning Inventa, using Amazon planes, flies her captives to her island home, the Isle of Cadmia, where ingenious devices await a new victim's trials. Here Wonder Woman is forced to undergo the unknown perils of the Four Dooms. What the outcome will be, the rest of this amazing story will reveal in part two of the Four Dooms, the Titanic Trials. Wonder Woman, your first trial is the Doom of the Rolling Stone. If you fail to roll the stone to the very top of the hill, your mother and all the Amazon prisoners will be executed immediately. If you succeed, their lives will be spared until you meet the second doom. Begin. Wonder Woman actually had a fairly easy time with this particular task, but it took a turn for the Sisyphean when Inventa turned on a magnet that was hidden within a tent near the hill that Wonder Woman was having to roll the rock up. Apparently the rock had metal in it that was drawn to the magnet. Diana eventually figured this out and during a period when Inventa expected her to be rolling the rock, she instead batted the rock with her Amazonian bracelet and sent it over the hill before any evil interventions could be enacted. Next up was the Doom of the Blinding Mirrors where the princess was surrounded by her own likeness, which was then magnified by light so that no matter where she looked she was blinded by her own image, which then appeared to attack her. As it turned out, it was members of Inventa's group impersonating Wonder Woman trying to make her confused or indecisive enough to get stabbed. You can predict how that worked out. Having already reached the halfway point, Torcha was getting steamed. She wanted to just cack the Amazons. She was the Scott evil of this group, but Inventa wasn't willing to admit defeat before her own people and assured Torcha that one of the other two dooms was going to take care of business. Next up was the Doom of the Labyrinth, where Wonder Woman would have to escape a maze within 60 seconds or the Amazons' lives would be forfeit. She initially tried to take it on with super speed, but realized that wasn't going to be enough within the time frame. But she knew she had one power even faster than her physical speed, the speed of thought. Calling out at the center of the maze, she listens for the echoes of the blind alleys, and with her keen hearing determines which exit would be true right at the 59 second mark. The fourth doom was the dragon's teeth, which was essentially one of walking through a minefield, but it was on green grass and it involved giant teeth coming out of the ground. Dinah just leapt through the field, managing to evade any explosions before they could actually reach 
her because of her incredible speed. Torcha chastised Inventa that she wasn't so smart. Wonder Woman won. What are you going to do now? Add a fifth doom. Inventa lassos Wonder Woman with her own lasso of truth and forces Diana to tell her what would doom the Amazons. A cursory knowledge of Golden and Silver Edge Wonder Woman comics should make that clear. Having a man set foot on Paradise Island robbing them of their immortality. So Inventa has Wonder Woman use her mental control of a robot plane to take Torcha to Washington, D.C. to pick up Steve Trevor to bring back to Paradise Island to set foot on it to take away the immortality. Steve immediately realizes that something's wrong and gets whacked in the head with a sword. Not the most useful end of the sword, though. Or in the revised version, the butt of a rifle, which frankly makes more sense. So he's taking a little catnap on the way back to Paradise Island. But despite how fast the invisible plane can move, Wonder Woman still has time to think her way out of the situation. As the plane is returning to Paradise Island, Diana has the wing fly past herself and Inventa, clip the lasso of truth, ripping it from Inventa's grasp. Diana leaps onto the plane, beats up Torcha, and drops the escapees back on Transformation Island. Here are your escaped prisoners, Mala. Patience, discipline, and love will win them over to our Amazon ways of life. Passing over Paradise Island. Hola, Hola princess. princess. I am proud of you, daughter. You are a true Amazon. Farewell until we meet again. Farewell. En route back to America. How do you feel, Steve? As if I'm dreaming. But as long as you're here, beautiful, don't wake me up. The final story from Wonder Woman number 208 was a reworking of Robert Kaniger and Harry G. Peter's second story from the September-October 1952 cover dated Wonder Woman number 55, once again reinterpreted by Kaniger himself with Rick Estrada and Vince Coletta. Have you ever seen a mountain move or an ocean vanish? You will. When you find Earth the helpless pawn in the hands of a ruthless force from outer space. With the world will step from disaster, Wonder Woman, beautiful as Aphrodite, wise as Athena, stronger than Hercules and swifter than Mercury, rockets to a lifeless planet to play a game of life and death with the Chessmen of Doom. In the original story, Wonder Woman is at the observatory of Professor Lane, and together they spy light from an exploding star that's a million, million miles away. Later that night, Diana Prince returns home when there's a knocking at her door. Die, you gotta speak to Wonder Woman for me. Tell her that I love her, that I want to marry her, that I won't take no for an answer. But Steve, you know as well as I that Wonder Woman has said that she won't be free to marry you until she's no longer needed to battle crime and injustice. Hours later, and I love Wonder Woman, and... Yawn. Excuse me, Steve, but I simply must get some sleep. Yawn. Yawn. Good night. See you at the office. The next morning, Steve Trevor contacts Diana through Wonder Woman's mental radio. She's called to counter a crisis at the oceans, namely that the oceans no longer exist. Ships and animals are stranded on seabeds with no water to be seen. Diana takes a giant seashell and bore into a sub-oceanic well. She creates a canal and is able to push all the ships and animal life into that little canal to survive. Next, an entire mountain range begins moving around, crushing everything in its path. Diana lassos the mountain and manages to stop it before it destroys the village. Then she returns to military intelligence where America's top feudal minds are trying to figure out what to do about the situation. Professor Lane is also there and suggests a game of chess to help clear their mind. He gets his best ideas playing chess. Diana simultaneously plays Professor Lane and Steve Trevor manages to check them both. And then she has an idea. She and Steve fly into outer space where they realize that earth is merely a chess piece in a gigantic cosmic game of chess they manage to work backwards from the point of where the players would be within the universal scheme and discover the last two surviving chakarians an alien race that the amazon has assumed had gone extinct the entire planet of chakarana had been populated by beings that resembled the pieces on a chessboard and so the last surviving pieces were a green-skinned king and a bipedal horse knight all the other denizens of the planet had been killed because they had played such high-stakes games 
games of chess that money no longer had any value, so they began killing each other if they lost the game. But realizing that if one of them died, there would be no one else to play, the last two Chikarians decided to play for different stakes. They would use their cosmic chessboard to destroy whole planets, and that would be stakes enough to make the games worthwhile. They, of course, had no concern about the lives that would be snuffed out by their games. Wonder Woman was horrified by their callous nature, managed to shake off a paralysis beam that she and Steve had been hit with, and then fly back off into space. Daddy comes up with a plan where she lands on a meteor that they had spied earlier and uses her lasso to rub against its surface until it becomes shiny. Then she uses the robot plane to attract the attention of the Chikarians who are blasting cosmic beams all about. Instead of hitting her, they hit the meteor, which deflects the rays back onto Chikarana, destroying the planet. That ends the chess game of space and the threat to our universe. You defeated them with a single move, Wonder Woman. Their ruthlessness led them to devote all their attention to destroying us. A single pawn, with the result that they destroyed themselves. This will happen to all who threaten the liberty of others. The end. In all three of these cases, the Golden Age story is much superior to the Bronze Age one. The originals have more breathing room. They are more of their time. Actually, what's funny is Rick Estrada's art seems more dated to me than Harry G. Peter's. I think because Peter was always an anachronistic artist. He always had sort of a weird, antiquated style, kind of resembled wood carvings. So he wasn't really of his time in his time, and by extension is somewhat timeless by comparison. Rick Estrada uses a lot of 70s-isms, a lot of shortcuts, and Estrada seems like he's going out of his way to make the stories more dynamic at the cost of the storytelling. He's always trying to use dynamic angles, very dramatic, big explosions, extreme perspectives. But if you look at the Harry G. Peter stories, you can tell what's going on from panel to panel without reading the captions. The captions just make them more interesting because they add to the weirdness. You really don't understand what the heck's happening in these Rick Estrada stories without reading the text because it's all about these action beats. And it's so aggressive in its presentation that it starts to grade after a while. Also, they're just not as imaginatively rendered. Like in the Chessman story, the knight is literally a bipedal horse. Very little is done in the way of humanizing this being. It has hooves. It's entirely equine. Where in the 70s story, it's just an armored dude with a horse head. In the original story, the king is green and sort of seems like he's half melted and very peculiar looking. In the Estrada story, it's just an old Arthurian looking dude. I like two out of the three stories, which I'm surprised by because I really don't like the Kaniger material I've been exposed to. The 50s stuff was okay. The 60s stuff, though, is where it felt like Kaniger was actively fighting against feminism, trying to put one woman in her place. These earlier stories show that transitional period where Kaniger was trying to carry on the traditions of William Moulton Marston, and so they feel much more of a piece with that earlier material that I prefer. I liked Princess May and Chang. They were cool looking, although the circumstances are such that I can't imagine them having more adventures. They were entertaining while they were present. Inventa and Torture, though, were pretty cool. Terrible names. Awful names. You have to completely fix those. But as far as characters and the story in which they're presented, for the most part, that was really cool. I don't think that the Four Dooms made a lot of sense, and I wish that there had been more of an effort to show that the Amazons are being placed in this peril as a way of trying to pull information out of them about where they get their powers from, since that was the stated goal of Inventa. Also, the fact that the whole thing ends with the Lasso of Truth, if she'd used the Lasso of Truth in the first place, she'd have known that there wasn't any secret to what the Amazons were doing. You just have to be good for goodness sake, and then you'll have the benefits of the might of right or whatever they were calling it. But it was still a fun story if you didn't think about it too much. The Chessman one got a little too Grant Morrison for me, but it didn't have that sense of wonder, that fantastic. It's like big stuff is happening, but 
because of how Kaniger writes it, it just feels like nonsense. And I checked out the story very early on because I just couldn't get into anything that was happening. And I was really hoping too, after that bizarre sequence where Steve was begging Diana Prince to talk him up to Wonder Woman, that it was going to all end up being a dream of hers. I mean, that seemed to me like it would make the most sense because of how ridiculous the circumstances got. And instead, in both stories, it's presented as though this was a scientific fact that this happened. And of course, it ends with Wonder Woman killing these two guys, which isn't really in keeping with the way Marston presented the character. So I couldn't really get into that one. I think it got a little too weird, even by Wonder Woman standards. But all three of the stories make a lot more sense in their original presentation. Trying to take these stories and put them into the 70s, I don't, really don't know what they were thinking. I, I think maybe Kanegar knew that he was only back on the book as a temporary measure, as a stopgap. And so he put no effort into it. And it clearly shows. And now, Wonder Words ride from the 108th Sage, Ange, Bad Ombre Scott, Between the Pages, Bill Bear, Changeling, Cindy Womack, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comics Couplets, Comic Reflections, Craig Lyle, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, who tweeted of episode 5, Kudos Diablo Frank, Great Questions in Editing, Had an Absolute Blast Today Recording About a Favorite Character, Thanks for Making It So Much Fun, More from David Golding Art, DCU Movie Page, Ed Moore and Ed Moore Jr., Firestorm Fan, Glenn Walker, Jeffrey Brown, John D. Knoll, Joseph Crawford, Keith G. Baker, King Size Comics Giant Size Fun Podcast, Linda Vickers, Luke Dobb, Mario at Luther Lang, Nethead, Outrage, Pensiero Negativo, Pietro Blacksimoff, PJ Frightful, Randy Caldwell, Richard Field, The Silver and Gold Podcast, Synodalia Scarecrow, Trekker Talk, who added a new episode of Diana Prince Wonder Woman Makes This a Great Day, Upstate Horror, Warwood Worlds Podcast, who added Getting the Morning Off to a Wonderful Start with Diana Prince Wonder Woman from Diablo Frank, Warrior for Peace Podcast, Willie Yarbrough, Wren, and the Xenozoic Xenophiles Podcast. Paul Hicks tweeted of episode 4, A Final Adventure of Wonder Woman. No way, is it that time of year already? Yeah, yeah, the schedule's picked up some since then. Professor Alan Middleton posted about podcasts he caught up with over the summer, including Diana Prince Wonder Woman. I'll be honest, this one wasn't that hard. It was only three episodes, less than 90 minutes total. But listening to Diablo Frank talk about the Amazon Princess for any amount of time is always interesting. In the company of our podcast were Waiting for Doom, Doctor Who Dark Journey, PXPPXP, Masters of Carpentry, Radio Free GOP, and The Riverdale Project. Tracker Talk tweeted, Celebrate the 75th anniversary of Wonder Woman with Ryan Daly and Diablo Frank on the latest Power of Fishnets podcast. They also noted that Mark Sweeney talks Wonder Woman's 75th anniversary and the War of the Gods in his latest episode. I'm sure Diablo Frank will be interested. True is that. Mark Sweeney of the I'm the Gun podcast noted, Looking forward to listening to your WWE episode today too. Love that last issue of Volume 1, even the heck art. And I enjoyed the War of the Gods podcast. I recommend folks check it out. I should have a link up on the blog. Mark Gray wrote of Episode 4, A Final Adventure of Wonder Woman, 1985. I must have a greater tolerance for heck than others. He was never a big favorite, but neither was he a negative factor. Maybe it was nostalgia. I also enjoyed his late work on The Flash and Wonder Woman. I'm a sucker for his slow-eyed ladies. I was a long-term fan even back then and loved the Michigan issues. The Newell stuff wasn't bad, but too many characters meant not enough Diana. Conway, though, was on stunning form in that last issue. It was great that someone who wrote her for years on her own book and JLA got to close the book. But bad Hippolyta. What's that rubbish about her only daughter? Poor Nubia's in the corner, sobbing. Forgot to say, I'm looking forward to Wonder Woman's weekly loads. And I'm looking forward to covering Nubia. Andrew. I didn't read one too much back then, but I did get the crisis crossovers like a good consumer. These stories were bonkers and didn't do too much to make me think I was missing anything. In fact, the Don Heck art would probably have kept me away even if the story was intriguing. I had read enough Heck on Supergirl stories and Superman Family to learn to loathe him. All that negativity aside, I did like the short-lived happy ending in 329 before the events of Crisis 12. And that cover? Good enough for me to bring it to Jose Luis Garcia Lopez to get signed at last year's Boston Con. Oh, and so glad to hear we'll be hearing more of these. Finally, Count Drunkula wrote, Love this episode, Frank. Frank. 
like. I don't know if it was the content of the stories or your more stripped down production approach, but this was great. Please keep it up. I've never read these four issues, but I'll probably grab them on Comixology when I get the chance, especially the finale written by Conway that sounds awesome. I've only read a handful of post Wonder Woman number 300 Dan Mishkin issues, and while I certainly want to read more, Don Heck's involvement is always the thing that makes me think, or there's that other thing I could buy. Anyway, love the style and sound of this episode. More like this soon. Wonder Woman is the copyright of DC Comics Entertainment. This is a non-profit fan-produced podcast. No infringement of any copyrights are intended. And where copyrighted material appears, it is believed protected under fair use. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to leave a comment on the Diana Prince is the new Wonder Woman blog, the Rolled Spine podcast blog. Write to me at email of Diabolu at yahoo.com featuring two underscores. Or just hit me up on Twitter at Commander Blanks or at Rolled Spine. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week.